Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is not yet on the ballot for 2024. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, President-elect Anirban Mahanzi. How are you, dog? I'm very good. Why am I not on the ballot? Not yet. Well, okay, fine. For 2024. 2024. I think if we get this one out of the way, we build up our podcast audience, we start to get a following, yeah. and then bang, one, two, the Mahanti Phillips ticket, yeah. 2024, yeah. we're home. Oh, you should just be by default winners. Hey, done. There yeah, you go. We'll just- no competition. <laughs> I think they call it a dictatorship. That's fine. We'll take oh, it. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so, and, and look, Doc, here's the thing. What did you think about the winner of the presidential election? Is there one? We don't know. It is, it is as usual, Thursday morning, the 5th of November, and there's not a worse week to be pre-recording a podcast because, frankly, by this time tomorrow and by the time you hear this podcast, goodness knows what's happened. As it stands, as it stands at the time of recording, we think that Joe Biden is within striking distance. Some news agencies reporting six electoral college votes away from victory. And by the time you have listened to this, very good chance he's won. Or frankly, anything else could have happened. We have Donald Trump filing um, court cases around the country in the US for stopping the count, starting the count, getting recounts, stopping postal votes, getting postal votes included. Uh, there's a bit there's a bit to go, mate, as you say. This is not over just yet. Oh, it's not over. I mean, you know, maybe by the time people hear this, Nothing has happened. <laughs> we will be maybe talking about the same thing next week. <laughs> maybe and I'm the week do, after. I'm probably maybe we'll better on that. Maybe Welcome that's to the Motley Fool Money Politics Podcast. <laughs> Podcast. We won't do that, we promise. No. Uh, mate, so look, we will talk a little bit about that because I think there were some fascinating things overnight that, as I said, won't be as t- as timely uh, when our listeners get to hear this, but but certainly I just, I just I find fascinating and maybe you do too or maybe you think I'm an idiot, in which case we'll move on very swiftly from that. We all had so much on the docket this week, a big, big macro week. Um, there's a thing called the RBA, and they they put out a statement this week, which is kind of kind of important. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we all talk about. I, I want to ask you about COVID. Now we've, it's 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 probably a nice situation when COVID's the third thing to talk about, right? Given the, given the year that we've had, um, Victoria again today announced I think it's the sixth zero case day in a row, and and thoughts turn to whether or not this is the new normal. We'll talk about that. Bank profits are on the nose yet again. The third of three banks reporting this fortnight. NAB was out this morning. And we'll talk about a question or a topic that Colin raised. Not a mailbag so much, but Colin sent us a link to a, an article or a bit of research done about company directors and how important pay and performance are to the execution of their duties and the results of the companies. And, of course, if we have time, and I'm pretty sure we will, we'll dip into the full mailbag. Mate, lots to get on, to, on with. Shall we do it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, the election. I So a couple of things that I thought were, were fascinating and, and we don't tend to, you know, there's a phrase in politics called race calling, which is when you focus on the who's doing what rather than actually what the big policies are. And we generally try and avoid that. We Our version of that in, in investing is actually just being long-term investors, right? Not worrying about short-term movements and volatility and that kind of stuff. And we don't care at all about those things, generally speaking. We kind of always feel a little bit happier when shares are up and a little bit less happy when shares are down. But we know it's a long-term game and we're kind of inuring ourselves to the, the, the pain of that volatility and, and the um, exaltation sometimes from the same from the same volatility. Overnight, so we, we, we got to kind of watch our market while their election was happening and then we got to watch the futures and, and then kind of our uh, the US market that traded in real time overnight. What I thought was fascinating was the sheer size of some of the movements of the exchange indices. So the NASDAQ started the day, I want to say the NASDAQ future were negative, certainly ASX was negative in the start of the day. 
The NASDAQ futures at one point then were up, limit up, as they say in the trade. In other words, it got as high as it's allowed to go before they actually stopped trading and let things settle down. That's about, is it 5%, I think, from memory? So it was up, so it went from negative to up 5%, back down to one point. I know we have a Slack channel for work and I missed at one point, the NASDAQ futures were then up only 0.4%. So that's from negative to plus five to plus 0.4. Finished the day up, I think I'd say 2.2% by the time, 2.3% by the time the futures stopped trading. And then of course, overnight, the, the market actually actually was open which is kind of nice um and the market it finished up 3.85 percent now those are big numbers in anyone's language but for those swings in the case of 24 hours not even maybe just 24 hours um a phenomenal set of circumstances and it seemed to me and this just why i thought it was interesting it wasn't it didn't seem to be party specific when joe biden was assumed to be winning it was fine when donald trump was assumed to be taking the white house it was fine when Joe Biden was again, by the end of trade, assumed we taken the White House, it was fine. It was the times when people were less sure who was going to win. When the US futures, the stock futures, and, and our market to some degree as well, seemed to do their worst. And there really is that sense of, you know, we try and avoid cliches, but the market hates uncertainty is one that everybody uses. It's hard to disagree with based on the activity in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, that's part. I think partly that's what it is. I mean, that this is over and done. But I, I think there's mm. a little bit behind this, uh, the story behind this. You know, my interpretation is that it is a reflection of um, the results, which effectively, mm. like, so that you know, the, the combinations that seem to be open right now are President Biden, yes, with a Republican Senate, yes. Republican-controlled Senate, or President Trump, controlled by with a Republican-controlled Senate, yes, Either, by the Democrat House in either case as well. Yeah, but, but <laughs> just to make it confusing. Yeah, so I can, but what that basically yeah, means yeah. is the president, by default, yeah. uh, will only be making if it's President Biden. Yeah. Then to execute on his policies, he can only make those decisions that don't require the purse strings right, of right. the government. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, maybe 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 Parliament will get together and have some sort of unity Parliament with consensus uh, decision making. Yeah, you know, that could tradi- that happen, traditionally, a, uh, <laughs> traditionally, apparently, at least I have not checked this, but I've heard, I've seen tweets. Um, <laughs> Let's say that when you have <laughs> you have got opposing parties uh, in the White House and in control of government, because the the you know the president in the U.S. is not the government, right? The president in the U.S. Correct. is actually the executive branch. Yep, yep. Uh, the government is actually the Senate and and the House, right? Um, so when they have opposing, <laughs> lot less gets done, which means status quo continues, which yeah. everybody loves. So um, I think the other interpretation that people were taking off this is. It's high. There's high likelihood there's going to be more stimulus. People will agree on a stimulus now, yeah, yeah. and there's less likelihood of taxes going up. <laughs> all in all, more stimulus. Uh, you know, no changes to the tax code. Uh, from, uh, I'm talking corporate tax code. Um, you know, all stocks are happy. Uh, that yeah. was my interpretation. But uh, you know, as I said on that channel too, like you know, I actually don't care who wins. I don't care what happens. It doesn't matter who the president is because. Um, you know, and it hasn't mattered in the past. Too. Like, I mean, it matters in other things, but it doesn't matter for investing largely because, you know, the internet will, will still be raring to go. Right, the, right, uh, right. you know, internet will rocket. The uh, cloud computing will hit new stratospheric heights. Uh, <laughs> all the other good things yep. that have been happening will continue to happen. Mm-hmm. They have happened irrespective of who has been at the White House and who has been in the government because, you know, most of the time the governments make decisions in fringes that, anyways, government can't make those innovative decisions. Mm. Uh, corporations are making those decisions, right? And, you know, so I'm long corporations and I don't really care what the governments are doing. (laughs) 
as long as there's nothing that uh, scares the horses. And as you say, that was the that was the concern maybe during the during the day during overnight the, the back and forth was what might happen next. I think you're right about the taxes in particular. I think there's some, you know, the 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 reality was going to be that if if Biden was elected and his policies were able to be enacted, and that's that's a couple of ifs side by side, which obviously by definition reduces the odds. Um, it was it, it would have increased the tax take at least at a nominal level at a at a, at a theoretical level by about thirty percent, thirty three percent in fact, from twenty one percent the current corporate tax rate to twenty eight percent was what he was proposing, and so that would have had a meaningful impact on obviously tax revenues for us as investors and for US investors it would have meant a material reduction in the profitability of those companies after tax of course not doesn't impact the pre-tax profit but there's less of the money left to take home because more of it's got to be remitted to the government and that was potentially going to be something that should have all things being equal impacted on share prices because if you take the net present value of all the future cash flows if there's simply less future cash flows because of a higher tax rate that was going to hurt or should have hurt as you say in, in the event it's a it's a fascinating story and look you know we won't get too macro but i gotta say I am a little bit concerned about the shape of the US balance sheet. If we get a scenario where they say no tax hikes, but lots more stimulus, it's kind of one of the things where, you know, heads, we spend, tails, we don't raise any more revenue. That makes the government balance sheet a whole lot worse, at least for the foreseeable future and puts a decent amount of pressure on maybe the, you know, at some some future point, maybe it's a year, five years, 10 years away. But this is kind of a bit of a kick in the can down the road story if that's all that ends up getting done, right? More spending, no more tax. Um, we all know from our own personal balance sheets, you can't keep doing that forever. It, it does raise the specter of of a bigger reckoning at some future point. Well, unless you're the reserve currency then, and you can print, you can create money out of thin air, right? <laughs> I mean, that's basically, I think their biggest advantage is, is having being the reserve currency, right? So, I mean, uh, every other currency really is fighting a war against the, the US dollar, right? Mm-hmm. And they could just print some more money, effectively. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I don't... You know, I used to think that the, their balance sheet is an issue, but it looks like their balance sheet probably is not an issue, at least mm. not an issue as long as the the US dollar is the... I, I mean, the US dollar is the reserve currency. I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, US technology is the reserve technology. So mm. I think they have got... They're in a position, uh, you know, and that perch, which affords them a lot of leeway that, mm. you know, mm. other people don't have. Indeed, indeed. Mate, let's go... <laughs> Speaking of things you um, don't have a view about, because you don't really have a view about the RBA. I have a very little view of the RBA, but <laughs> we'll see. So let's let's set the scene at least, and then I'll let you off the leash. So the RBA this week, I, I wrote a, a longish post about this. And if you are, look, we, we kind of give our socials sometimes, partly for fun, partly because we want you to follow us. If you do want to read some of the stuff that I do write from time to time, uh, jump on Twitter, jump on Facebook. You can follow me there. Um, Doc doesn't tend to post stuff there, but Doc, if you ever do, let me know and I'll happily share it. Um, at Scott Phillips Money is the Facebook handle and at TMF Scott P on Instagram, oh, on Twitter and Instagram probably, both Twitter and Instagram. Um, I wrote during the week, the, the biggest headline was always going to be RBA cuts rates. And the official cash rate's gone from 0.25 to 0.1%. Now, you and I have talked about this in the past. We're agreed that it's a bizarre scenario to believe it's necessary. And even that if it is necessary, it's going to be impactful. Such a relatively small movement from a tiny rate already uh, was largely, I don't know, I'm almost inclined to think it's symbolic. In the event, while I got the headlines, that was, I want to say, the fourth most important piece of news that came out from the RBA on Tuesday. And, and it's kind of, you know, it gets a bit wonky pretty quickly. Now, they committed $100 billion with a B to buy Australian government bonds. That is effectively quantitative easing. It is exactly quantitative easing. Uh, it used to be called money printing, but we don't call it that anymore because we're um, in, in polite company, so we call it quantitative easing. Um, that's designed to keep the long-term bond rate down 
So we know the RBA's variable cash rate affects the short-term money market, literally the overnight money market. Um, the bond buying program is supposed to say, look, we'll use official cash rates to keep the variable rate down. We'll use long-term bond buying to keep the long-term interest rate down. So doing that. They've said on top of that, that they will put any more money required into that. Literally, well, they don't say unlimited. They didn't provide a limit and said, we, we remain ready to do whatever is required. That's a very large amount of <laughs> potential, um, you know, challenges. And then you've got the scenario where they've effectively, you know, not ruled out uh, anything, including negative rates. They don't see a need, but they haven't ruled that out as either. Um, the last one is the inflation rate. And they've always had a target inflation band of 2 to 3%. And they have, in the past, managed policy to get us to that point. And with a view that over time, they want to keep us within that band. They've now changed that and said, we will only increase rates when we're there, rather than when we think we're going to get there. And this is important because the RBA's policies in the past generally take six to nine months to take full effect, right? If they change rates now, the full effect is probably felt in six or nine months. By the time the economy kind of bakes those into everything they're doing, whether that's jobs or hiring or business investment or home loans or spending or currencies, everything else, it just takes that time, right? So the RBA would normally look ahead six, nine months and say, right, if we do something now, the impact in six months will be this. So let's do it now and wait for the effect to happen. We'll just assume it's going to happen. If it doesn't, we'll do more then. This is this is a very, very, and look, it doesn't feel like a big deal, right? Is it now is it six months? No one seems to, no one really cares. Um, it doesn't really seem like it's important, but this time they're basically saying we will do nothing to raise rates until the inflation is actually inside that target band. So this is, even if they see it coming, if they see it coming with headlights on, even if it's absolutely going to shoot through two to get to seven, right now at least they're saying we're not going to touch it, even if it looks terrible, until it gets to that point. And it's not, you know, again, it feels like a, it feels even funny to say it, right? Because I want to make sure people understand. It feels like a, a small difference, almost just, a, you know, a wording difference. It's a really material change. So with all of that said, mate, <laughs> I'm about to step away, give you the floor, give you the mic, cover myself in bomb, my bomb detection gear and uh, and ask you what you think about what happened this week from the RBA. Well, um, uh, Dr. Lowe did what he does best, which is he makes rates low. Um, so that's what happened. Uh, Chains, chainsaw low. Chainsaw low. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've offered this many times. I can do this job for a quarter of, you have, the, you have. Quarter of the pay. Uh, heck, I'll even do it for one-fifth of the pay because it's very simple. All you got to do is put the rates well, down. You, you do it part-time as well, right? You wouldn't have to give me day jobs. It doesn't have to be, a, you know, I'll just do it for one-fifth. One It'll save yeah. taxpayers a lot of money. Uh, Doing your lunch hour once a month on a Tuesday? Uh, yeah, it's very easy. Like, you know, just cut. Um, yeah, so that's what happened. Um, so I have a different, you know, so I'm not, again, a couple of different things at a high level. Yeah. It is not clear to me what problem they're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, and so, so if you think about it, if the rate was 0.05. Yeah. Now, uh, okay, I'll actually back, back step a bit. So the rates are near zero everywhere. Yes. Right. Um, which is part of their rationing, rationale, by the way. Which is part of their you, rationale. Yep. Right. However, when the rates uh, just contrast with the Federal Reserve uh, before the pandemic, before the pandemic, the the U.S. Federal Reserve was basically cutting rate not because the economy inside the U.S. was bad, mm -hmm. it was because the economy outside the U.S. was bad. Yeah, that yeah. was the that was the wording. Right. Yep. yep. Here, the the message that I get is our economy is really in trouble. Mm -hmm. We're going to cut rates. Yep. However, what I don't understand is what you could do. What could be borrowed at 0.25 is going to become now materially cheaper at point one, right? You know, if you could 
point of five is as close as, as it gets to zero as is point one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, in my mind, it's not really even about the rates. Mm-hmm. It's so I'll abstract a little bit and I'll let's assume Australia is a company. Yep. Okay. And Australia is a company which has, is in the business of selling some stuff. Yes. I think the problem is not Reserve Bank per se. Mm-hmm. Its problem is the company called Australia. Right. And the problem is that if you're selling most of your goods, like the largest export, for example, is iron ore, you're basi- you basically are a price taker. And exactly yep. as in business, we say you don't want to you don't want to invest in price takers. I think yep. that's the problem we've got. Right. And to make our price takers, you know, so we've got you know we're selling iron ore, we're selling coal, uh, we're exporting education, or in in other words, you're basically bringing in students. We are. Yes. Um, so it's not Good about tourism. Ed- so it's not about education quality anymore. It's about business, right? Sure. And what really sells at that point is whether or not you have cheap education cheaper relative to others right mm-hmm. um, uh, gold uh, aluminium beef mm-hmm. right none of these things are value add you know in the sense that there's no IP involved yep. anybody else can sell beef anybody else can sell iron or, or assuming they've got it yeah, 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 uh, yeah. so there's that e- the yeah, advantage yeah, of having yeah, it yeah. The, 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 our iron ore is no different than anyone else's yeah. not, not everyone necessarily has it but if you buy Brazilian iron ore or Australian iron yeah. ore or Chinese iron ore it's the same thing exactly yeah. so I think and then if you combine that with we are a high cost nation in terms of wages mm-hmm. right in other words our cost for doing business is actually higher the only way you can stay competitive or mm. or competitive relative to others mm-hmm. is to actually jawbone your currency that's i think in my view that's yep. exactly what the rba is doing it's not about rates it's basically jawboning the currency mm-hmm. relative to others to maintain competitiveness yep. um so i think the rba is trying to solve a problem which it mm. can't really solve mm. <laughs> so that that's my 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 if i if i abstract and I take a 60,000 feet view i think therein there is the problem the problem is that the the jobs a lot of jobs are tied to those sectors which are price takers mm-hmm. and and i think therein um you know you can do some currency war and it is possible that the currency war helps i think the because again it's going to help it in, in reduce pricing relative to but i think there's a flip side right the flip side is that we also import a lot of the things that we consume mm. so if my jeans is going to become more expensive mm. uh, my tv if i have to buy a tv is going to become more expensive relative yep. to if you know if the job owning of the currency actually works mm-hmm. right um so that may actually result in inflation yep. which Basically, what the RBA is saying, I'm happy to ignore for the time being. Yeah. So I don't know. This is a little bit in the uncharted. Well, in fact, I actually wouldn't mind it if they could get if they could get greater export stimulus and some more inflation in the country. They'd actually be really happy with that. I mean, we know they've targeted two to three percent. I would I would actually say not they're not even worried about later. They're like I'm actually cool with it. That's a positive side effect yeah. for me. So like I, I think it's okay. Or what I think I, what I worry about is uh, it is not addressing a problem. It's basically mm. just kicking the can down the road. Um, you know, the problem is should be or the effort should be to diversify the economy mm. towards high IP mm. in other words not be a price taker economy but to be a price setter economy mm. and uh, you know and maybe that's not the RBA's mandate so uh, you know so anyways this is, yeah, this, I, this is a hard part right we, we've said, I've said this many times my, my biggest issue is the RBA only has a very limited toolkit and yet I, 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 we're, we're, I'm following the same trap I'm asking you about it we're talking about it Government has every other policy under the sun, fiscal policy, trade policy, industry policy, all the other stuff that goes with that. The RBA can either put rates up or down or buy bonds. <laughs> it's like, and there is some sense of, as you say, they're left kind of carrying the can in a way that and, – and they're not alone either, by the way. There's plenty of other – as you said, right around the world, rates are near zero. Right around the world, people are trying to find ways of stimulating their economy and kind of trying to keep the gravy train pushing forward. Um, so, I, you know, it's, some, it's not like, I don't think it's a national problem or not an only a national problem. But as you say, the solutions are far from clear. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think the other risk is that it creates asset price inflation, mm. right? And it creates asset price inflation where it should not create asset Correct. price inflation, Correct. right? So it's, you know, it's not as if the shares of Amazon are going up. It's, yeah. you know, the shares of CBA are going up. Yeah. They're two very different things in my mind, right? Yeah. So if yeah. you know, shares of CBA are going up because you're doing asset price inflation, yeah. shares of Amazon are going up because Amazon is expanding its coverage mm. uh, around the world and growing its business at 35%. Mm. They're two mm. very different things. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the unintended consequences of this we would not know um, and that, that's why I, I just I personally think that if I was the Reserve Bank governor mm -hmm. I would just at some point say well you know this is beyond rate cutting <laughs> yeah, and exactly. uh, bond buying yeah you guys got to go to fix the other stuff because yeah. it's not my job to fix it. But I think, you know, you know, we fall into a trap where we think, you know, he's basically said I can go to negative rates mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, so I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable about this. It's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen in, in the short term, but this is like a long road to mediocrity, basically, if, you, if we follow this and we don't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's my, uh, my fear. That's why I don't like this mm -hmm. uh, policy. I think it's true. I think, and, and you know, I think the unintended consequences piece you ask about is, is I think that's the there's there's some known unintended consequences, and we know that house prices are up. We know that share prices are up, and you and I like house share prices going up. We like being richer. That's always nice, but we're also mindful enough to know that these things aren't sustainable in and of themselves. And if you're just inflating an asset price through, you know, the use of interest rates, you're not really solving anyone's problem, at least not over any long term. And quite frankly, my biggest concern is actually the the medium term, long term problem. In five years time. You know, Alan Green, for those who, those who are a little bit older than, than the average, Alan Greenspan back in the 90s was a genius. He was a hero until he wasn't. And it was one of those stories where, you know, his policies were great, deregulation, loose monetary policy, low interest rates. This was going to be great, fixing the economy, solving everyone's problems. A decade later, and frankly, ever since then, people look back and go, oh man, Alan, you you really screwed that up, dude. And, and you know, different scenario, different circumstances. We don't have the same issues or the same opportunities. We don't have the same people or the same circumstances. But man, you know, there's very it's a very real possibility that in X year's time, we look back and go, why in 2020 and 2019 and 18 and 17 were central banks around the world, including our own, pursuing policies that were, that had these risks that we just willingly accepted, blindly accepted almost, rather than actually doing something about fixing the underlying problems, as you as you rightly point out. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you know, this is like this is a second level thinking, right? The the, mm. the thing is that you know we 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 job on the currency, for example, and yep. because asset price inflation or prices go up. Now, if you baseline it to another currency, yeah, right. Actually, your wealth has not increased. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you could be that you think your wealth has doubled. Effectively, your wealth has actually only increased twenty percent because your currency has been jawboned. Yeah. So um, I think that like there are heaps of these other things that matter, and I think you know that's yeah. So I you know I, like we can be happy about the sh you know short term share price increases and things like that, but you know longer term again mm -hmm. it's just um, you know I rather this not be the approach and something <laughs> else be the approach. So yeah. So yeah, I'm willing to take that job and increase rates back to three percent. Very good. All right, man. Let's let's move on. Um, uh, let's let's our, our last little bit of macro for 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 today. Um, sixth day just announced before we went to air or, or started recording. Not went to air. Started record. Uh, sixth day of zero cases in Victoria. New South Wales hasn't released its results yet for today, Thursday the fifth, um, and frankly, um, will be finished well and truly by the time they do. But in any case, yesterday's numbers were, I think, a couple of community transmission cases, all close contacts. It's tempting to think this is the I won't say end game necessarily because a vaccine is the absolute end game. We, I think we all think, and maybe you don't, so just feel free to disagree. 
uh, if that's not the end game, this almost feels like some sort of new normal, some sort of, if, if we, yeah, by the way, sorry, the bigger news maybe in, uh, nationally, certainly for New South Wales, is Gladys Berejiklian and the Premier announced yesterday that we'll be opening the border to Victoria on November 23. Um, it, this does feel like a new normal, mate, at least, at least between now and, and vaccine. This feels like we're in a situation where the... You know, we can we can have views on how we got here, but we seem to be in a place where things are under control. We can, at least domestically within our own little bubble, maybe including New Zealand, go back to living our lives. Is is that is that too optimistic? Is it is it too Pollyanna? Is it is it you know? It, can we assume now that life as normal, at least again within that domestic bubble, is is normal? Is back to normal? Um, like, I mean, partially, yes. I mean, a couple of different things here that we need to be careful about, right? So I would have expected the numbers to go down uh, largely because, you know, Victoria has been locked, right? Yeah. So if... if <laughs> You'd hope so, they're doing yeah. something very so wrong. So if, yeah. if, if nobody's meeting anyone, nothing is happening, <laughs> yeah. um, the numbers should drop to zero. That's exactly. what the expectation is. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no rocket science there in my view. Yeah. Um, I think the real test is when you open up and you have test and trace. So I think if you have something similar to what New South Wales is doing, then I think that's the real test. So you get, you know, you get to low single digit numbers and so on. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and I think you should accept that that's the case and you continue with that. I think there's, there's, uh, there's weather impacts. Like, for example, we are in summer, right? Um, that's different from being in winter, yeah. right? So that has impacts on, uh, you know, again, it... Uh, I think I'll say that the virus is in the community. Yes, it's at, at what level we don't know, but mm. it's in the community, right? It's you know eradication. I don't think is a, is happening or right. going to happen. Um, but it it is at least uh, allowing for those businesses that were closed to, for example, open. So there's some semblance of life coming back to normal um, for those people who are out of job to actually have jobs now. So mm. that's I think that's mm. the positive um, side of it. And if it can continue in that form, at least. Um, it's a return from a significantly worse position yeah, yeah. to a much better position. That's yes, right. I'll uh, take that exactly. Yeah. So I think it's the uh, you know, on a relative scale. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely better. You know, what, what I think I, I disagree with is um, if this virus is going to be with us for years, yeah. <laughs> then. I don't know what the bubble actually does for us. Yeah. Um, uh, bubbles, by definition, are not very good because yeah. you're living in a bubble, yeah. uh, right? So, can, can, I, can I say? Can I, can I give a different view on that? Like, I get it, but I also think we don't. I mean, as much as tourism, both ways, uh, including education, we talked about that as we opened up the podcast in terms of some of our trade or halfway through the podcast, talking about some of our trade kind of exposures. Once we cycle that, once once, once things are normal, as long as the flow of goods and other services aren't actually impeded. The bubble really, I mean, as much as we think it's a bubble and it is, um, you know, it's no more a bubble than the earth is a bubble compared to the rest of the universe in the sense that there's no real reason for us to not live our lives. We just can't physically go overseas and, and travelers can't come here. You know, in, in the sense that once we get some sort of normalcy, if if for some reason, you know, the laws of physics change, aeroplanes stop flying, we just get back to life as, you know, a single island or maybe two with, with or three with New Zealand or four if I include Tasmania. Sorry, Tasmanians. Um, you know, there, there is some sort of like, you know, it's it's not the normal way you're used to. And it's not as free and big as we'd like it. But as long as trade continues and we can buy those goods like the jeans you talked about and the TVs and the cars, and as long as we can sell them our wheat and iron ore and hopefully the occasional value-added good if we can find one. Um, it, I mean, I, I think that's a, you know, there's a, maybe I'm just being optimistic, but there's a reasonable kind of business as usual thing which just says no tourism, but everything else can kind of go back to normal and there's no reason we can't kind of grow from there. 
Um, so I, I actually 100% disagree with that, largely okay. because, um, so I think, you know, it's a pro and con, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the the growth, so the, the, the definition of growth that I dislike the most is, well, if we have a 20% fall, hmm. and then we grow 1% from that, <laughs> it looks like great, <laughs> we're growing, right? That's number one. Coming out number of a recession, exactly, is, yeah, I th- I yeah. Think, yeah. So I really, actually, you know, people jump up and down, I really don't care about that. Yeah. Um, number two, I think, in my mind, is... Hmm. E- the whole definition of being free is being mm. the free actually means a lot more than being in a jail. Mm. So it might be a big jail, yeah, sure. But but sure. there is there is a definition. You know, it's like well, we can we can live our lives being in a jail as well, mm. right? So why not do just that? Yeah, uh, that's number two. I think number three is that I think the fact that if you are cut off from the rest of the world and isolated, you know, you'd not have those scientists coming here. Yeah. You would not have new talent coming here. You'd you know, this would not be the place where people would want to come in because it's a jail then, mm. right? Effectively, mm. um, I think those have again long term implications. Long-term implications of you again. It's like basically like this, you know, price taker model that we are talking about, right? Yeah, you know, you yeah, can right. be a price taker model. You won't know it now. Yeah. 15, 20 years from the uh, from now, you know, assume that you know, I don't know, no, uh, you know, coal is no longer required. Then, well, you've got, you know, nobody's even taking that price taking object, right? So yeah. I think there are there are um, um, follow-on implications, right? And mm-hmm. and so I think the 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 costs again are not known yeah. of being fully closed yeah. um, so that's what I think yeah, again we'll see Motley Fool Money financial advice for real people not trust fund hippies sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M mate um, let's let's move on from as from, from the macro uh, we can get back to some sort of business as usual at least well when I say as usual this is an ugly one for bank shareholders but it's become a new normal. Uh, NAB was out said only this morning again, and the numbers are big, but equally not surprising. And I guess again, it's one of those strange, it's one of those strange things about about life, right? But by the time you had two or three examples of it, or by the time you get used to an idea, it's not shocking anymore. NAB's profits were out today; they're down thirty seven percent. Now everyone goes, yeah, of course. But if you think back twelve months, um, probably exactly twelve months, maybe maybe a little bit less, even. But you know, sort of up to Jan Feb this year. The idea of bank profits falling by these sort of amounts was almost laughable in the general community. The sense that, well, okay, yeah, banks, yeah, okay, they mightn't grow, but banks, bank profits aren't going to fall. Of course they can't fall. How are they going to fall? Now, I don't expect people to forecast the the, you know, the literary black swan of, of COVID um, or, or the X factor of COVID, but to some degree, fast forward 10 months and we're like, oh, yeah, of course bank profits are down. Yeah, 37%, that's about right. Um, ANZ's was down, I think, was it 60%? ANZ's profits were down. Uh, NAB's down 37%. And so you kind of go, okay, well, that's about in the range of expectations. It's funny how quickly expectations change. Maybe there's a sense of, or a sign of how quickly humans do adapt to what they expect or some sort of new normal. The dividend, 30 cents a share compared to 83 cents last year. That's a fall of the best part of 60-odd percent, I think. I'll do the maths later. Um, this is, you know, th- these are these are big, big, big changes. Those of us who've been around for a while, and I get to go back to the early 90s, believe it or not, um, such as being the length of economic expansion in Australia, these were the sorts of falls you should expect during a recession. These are the sorts of falls you should expect when bad debts are on the increase, when economic activity, I won't say grinds to a halt because it hasn't done that, but certainly, you know, it gets a decent hole punched in it. So I guess the question right now is, what is a new normal for the banks? Now, when you're not a big bank fan. I'm not a big bank fan. So Alyssa shouldn't expect a completely, um, you know, 180 degree turn. All of a sudden, we, we love the banks. But is there a time, is there a place when all the bad news is baked in, when the banks start to become better value just because 
you know, I guess things would always get worse, right? But at some point, the, the, the risk and reward kind of scenario changes a little bit and you say, well, profits are down massively. The share price are down meaningfully. I don't know. When, when is it time to buy the banks? Oh, uh, well... I mean, when, when it's on a low enough <laughs> normalized P, I guess. <laughs> like, I, I mean, for me, the bank buying bank shares effectively is you buy them at a cheap enough price. If you buy them at cheap enough price, you make some returns, right? right? Um, so you need to know what that cheap enough price is. Yeah. Um, the bank shares are not growth shares. They have a finite amount of opportunity. Actually, right now they have with immigration down to zero. Right. Um, there actually should be zero growth. They should mm-hmm. be negative, really, mm-hmm. uh, given all the competition, right? So. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I don't know. I'll get to his rates in a second, by the way. Huh? I'll well, get to his rates in a second because that's the second part of this question. But yeah. in the meantime. In the meantime. So, <laughs> so if, I mean, you know, if they're available for, for like, yeah. you know, P of like six mm-hmm. <laughs> or eight or something like that, maybe, you know, somebody could be bold enough to buy them. Like, you mm. know, I, I wouldn't be touching bank shares with like a very long barge pole. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. Now, this so, so let's look at NAB for a second. NAB shares were over $30 back in 2018. During the depths of the uh, of the, I guess the you know COVID freakout, uh, the shares closed about fifteen bucks. So they fell by half in the space of six, 18 months. Let's call it just for the fun of it. Uh, maybe two years. They're now back to eighteen dollars seventy, and in fact, the shares are now meaningfully higher. So you know that's a good twenty percent higher, maybe twenty five percent higher than they were even in the news of this sort of fall. And I guess, to my mind, there's a couple of lessons here. The first is remember that. You, you know, by the time the bad news is real, the market's probably already expected it. If if you'd have said, well, in in March, April, May, we kind of knew things might be bad. In November, early November, we know things are bad, and we know how bad they are. And yet, shares are up twenty five percent from that point. So there is always a chance. I'm not saying people should have bought the banks back then, by the way, but just that sense that if you're waiting for the news, often the opportunity has passed. I think there's something to that. There is something, as you say, mate, about about what a reasonable level of profitability looks like and i think that's the challenge i i i'm, I'm a contrarian by nature right I'm, I'm a slightly different investing beast than you are investing animal i'm looking at some some numbers here on comsec they're they're publicly available so i'm not sharing anything that um can't be accessed by anybody it's no, not confidential information com and that com, comsec's website says the goldman sachs target price and we'll talk about target price another day twenty dollars ninety that's a good 220 above the current price i call that 15 percent Morningstar says accumulate with a fair value of $25. That's a good third above the current price. Morningstar Quantitative says $25.37. And the consensus of all of the analysts that Comsec um, surveys is a strong buy with three strong buys and one moderate buy. And in fact, the strong buy is now higher. It was a moderate buy in May. Now come six months, it's now a strong buy despite, as I said, all this news. Do we run the risk as foolish investors, capital F foolish investors, of underappreciating, undervaluing and missing these sort of opportunities because we're waiting for a cheapness that will probably never happen and yet there will be times when businesses like NAB and others actually do really well versus an index, give investors a really reasonable return. Are we in danger of missing the forest for the trees here being so, um, I won't say ideological because we're not necessarily ideological but we have a view about the, the, you know, the long-term prospects of these sort of industries. Are we going to miss a trick by leaving these alone and saying, no, 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 they're not cheap enough, not cheap enough, not cheap enough. And in the meantime, they go up by maybe 20, 25, 30%. Um, so no, like, I mean, as I said, like, I mean, so most of our style of investing really is to buy companies and, you know, basically hold them uh, over the long term, right? Yep. I mean, if the the normal 
normal for this. Uh, so mm -hmm. let's assume that NAB is underpriced, uh, you know, undervalued by say twenty percent. The shares <laughs> are going to go up twenty percent. Then what? After yeah. that, it's going to yeah. go up what three percent a year. <laughs> so this is a bit of like you know you have to you have to you have to time it right to get in. Mm -hmm. Then you have to time it right to get out. Like if you you know if you want to have a short term position in NAB and you're happy to go in and out, and mm -hmm. while doing that you're taking the risk that you know NAB is not going to go under. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying it's going to go under. But mm -hmm. you know like we can't assume that NAB is like uh, or any company for the matter of fact and any bank uh, which has a ten is to one leverage really um, uh, can't see share prices crash completely, right? Mm. For any number of ad adverse reasons, right? Uh, and that's not a dig on, on NAB. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, so that's that's the fact, right? The fact is that, you know, let's say we get 20% and then we're going to get 3%. Mm. I'd rather mm. make, you know, 11% every year for the next 10 years. Mm. I just don't understand how we can get, uh, make the same returns here. That's number one. Number two is like, if you think about the index too, right? I mean, mm. if the in, you know, these guys go up, so does the index, right? I mean, these guys make up what, 40% of the index, um, you know, so they're, they're a significant contributor to the index performance as well. So yeah. I, I don't know, like, I mean, I'm not a value hunter, uh, but yeah, mm. if somebody wants to do value hunting, there might be an opportunity here. But Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not rushing down to buy them, by the way, and I, uh, as much as I, I'm asking the question, I'm not, I'm not even asking it rhetorically, I don't have a, a strong view on the answer, but just, you know, there is just a, a, a reasonable question, I think sometimes. I, I've looked at, so I was asked during the week, uh, I do a, a regular segment on Ausbiz, um, with, by the way, yesterday, uh, our former co-host here at Motley for Money, Andrew Page, who's now doing his other thing, uh, and he was on, which was kind of funny. Uh, so for those who, those who are interested, you can probably Google that or uh, find the podcast of, of the Ausbiz, uh, The Call, it's called. And I was asked about two companies, mate. One was Orica and one was Origin Energy. Now, both ORI companies, as it turns out, but different, different ticket codes. Um, both those businesses are absolutely bombed out right now. And Orica makes explosives, largely as its core business, for mining operations. Mm -hmm. Origin Energy is obviously in energy retailing, but also in generation and mm -hmm. particularly gas. And it kind of, I gotta say, like I'm not, we're not recommending them at all. But I looked at this and I was asked about, you know, is it a buy, hold or a sell? And I said, look, I wouldn't buy either of them. But I did say in a basket of a dozen or so turnaround type stocks, I'd be surprised if, if that basket chosen well actually does okay from here. So if you think about the oil price is, is 30 something, 37, $38 a barrel. In the past, it's as high as 100. Maybe it never gets back there. Um, similarly, mining uh, expansion has been dramatically curtailed by COVID in particular and the economic forces around that in general. If you kind of believe that these things tend to be at least a little bit cyclical and you see two businesses that are at the very bottom of that cycle, again, maybe the cycle doesn't recover, right? So I want to be really, really clear. I'm not, I'm not forecasting. I'm not certainly not predicting. But if you kind of found enough cyclical businesses at the bottom of their cycle and bought a basket – you might just do okay, and I, and I have to say, as a, as a somewhat contrarian, sometime contrarian, I was a little bit, I was a little bit intrigued by the idea of, I wonder if I could put together a basket of half a dozen or a dozen companies, and actually make a, a decent return. Again, you've got if, if they're cyclical by definition, you have to be ready to sell them, and you're right, that's not what we do at the Motley Fool. But when I'm asked, you know, is this a market beater? That's a different question to, do I think it's a buy in one of our services, for example, where we have a very specific approach to investing and I'm just curious as to your thoughts on how you think about those sort of stocks yeah so like i mean again like i th i think if somebody has an active trading 
style, mm. then a basket of uh, turnaround type of stocks, especially the cyclical ones, can be good, mm. right? And you know, if you're really good at valuation of these things yeah. and you know the cycle very well, then you you could make you know uh, every mm. eighteen months maybe you know fifteen percent, twenty percent, and that, yeah. that yeah. can be market beating. It's just. Like if somebody wants to be less active <laughs> and uh, wants to buy basically, you know, what I call secular growth, then this is not the approach here. <laughs> I, think I, right. I, I think you make good returns. <laughs> yeah. You have to buy well and you have That's to sell true. well. That's true. That's yes, two yes. decisions that you need to make. <laughs> That's right. And get um, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard, but yeah, I can yeah. see how some people can do it. Yeah, no, for sure. All right, let's let's move on. I don't. This is you know a really cool question from Colin. It wasn't so much a question. You just sort of sent me a link and said, "What do you guys reckon?" And it's about directors. And I, we've I actually recorded a podcast. Like I, you don't know about this shit. Yet. Um, I spoke to the Queensland chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, uh, who contacted me after a couple of. He's actually a listener of the podcast. So good day, Stephen. Um, and that podcast episode will either be up before or just after this one goes to to the podcast queue. Um, he, he's from the Australian Shareholders Association, as I said, and and they spend a, a lot of time thinking about the people who are re- representing us as shareholders on company boards. And we had a bit of a push and shove, and not, not nicely, of course, but just a different perspective and different uh, questions. And I think I think he agreed with some of the things I said and disagreed with some, and I, I same with his. But Colin sent me this link to an ABC News report, and it was a, a study done by um, a mob of superannuation-funded advisors called Ownership Matters. Um, nice play on words. It's kind of a cool name. I like it. Uh, I like a pun. And they covered a whole lot of stuff. Now, I, they, they talk about the changes on boards. Um, so they say it's a study that examines the connections and performance of 5,400 directors who have served on our biggest 300 companies between 2005 and today. So a pretty good, a pretty good study. I mean, you know, small numbers, absolute terms, but but pretty good. Here's what they found, and here's the, some some reasonably stark numbers, mate. And I quote the, the, the ABC News article. Directors of poorly performing companies tend to remain ensconced in the job for about the same amount of time as those in top performing companies. So it doesn't matter how you perform, how much wealth the company you oversee generates for your investors, your job is relatively safe. It then goes on to say, not only that, the findings suggest that one of the key longstanding criticisms of the cosy world of corporate Australia, that you've got to be in the know to get the nod, that it's all about your connections, is now being applied to women. And they talk about you know the, the way that the boards are comprised. Apparently, um, 36% of directors who get chosen for an ASX 300 company are already directors of something else. In other words, to, to get in the club, or it's the whole thing about you know to, to get experience, you need, you need a job to get a job, you need experience. In this case, people who are already directors are very likely to be chosen to be directors of other businesses. That club uh, remains reasonably small and reasonably, reasonably tight. And then the money. <laughs> So here's the thing. They talk about how much pay is being provided to some of these guys. Um, and let me find the let me find the numbers because they are phenomenal. Here we go. The average fee for a director of a top 300 company is $146,000 a year. Now, I've been paying attention. I thought it was about half of that. They say get into a top 200 outfit and you're up for an average $180,000. Break into the big time with a top 100 board seat. How much do you reckon? Five hundred. Cool, close. $290,000 for being a board member of a top 100 company. And they say, of course, you land a couple of seats, you're in some serious loot. Directors, uh, sorry, chair, chairman's roles, at the average was $220,000 at a top 300. Well over half a million dollars for a top 100, to your point, Doc. Now, I I, I really find myself, and we, I talked about this in the podcast with, with Stephen, going backwards and forwards on this one. On one level, 
it feels like a very large amount of money for people who, particularly if they're being able to retain their board seats as long in an, under, an underperforming business as, as a performing one, it feels like a pretty good gravy chain, right? And if your job, and it is, is to represent the interests of shareholders and you're getting paid that much and frankly not making enough of a difference, I don't know. Like I'm not a huge fan of bonuses. The research from Daniel Pick and others says that bonuses for white collar work doesn't actually change the outcomes. It matters for if you're in a production role, so you're making a number of widgets, being paid a bonus to overachieve on a production level makes a difference. But I, I, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of dough for a closed club of people who are supposed to be looking after our interests and aren't doing the job. Now, on the other hand, and again, I said this to, to Stephen, on the other hand, I think, well, if you don't like your director's room, just you know, change companies. So I'm kind of, you know, on a very pragmatic level, if you don't like it, sell your shares, move on. But on, on some sort of systemic level, what happens when we have an industry where apparently $400 million a year is spent on director's fees? It's, it, it, it just strikes me as a, as a remarkably underperforming, expensive window dressing kind of outcome on average, there are some wonderful directors out there. I'm not absolutely blaming or bagging every single director. But I don't know, mate. What, what, what do you kind of, if you think about directors and how they act and how much they get paid and that, those sort of numbers that we just talked about, heard about, you know, their, their tenure on the boards, what does it say to you about the state of kind of oversight in corporate Australia? Uh, I don't know. I have mixed, like, just like you, like, I have, you know, I can have two different views. I haven't really thought about this in enough depth. Like, I mean, if you want people to like, I mean, board of board has oversight role, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's an important job, and therefore, if it's an important job, <laughs> yeah. I would expect yeah to be paid well, well for doing the, an important job. I right? laugh because Westpac was fined one point three billion dollars for not having the right risk controls in place. And so, yeah. uh, again, single example, easy to find the exceptions, but. As you say, oversight, I'm thinking, well, they didn't do a very bloody good job, did they? Yeah. So, like, I mean, so that's the thing, right? I mean, if, if you yeah. have good board members yeah. and, you know, you pay them well, I think it makes sense. Now, the problem yeah. here is but it's hard to really know, like, so so whether or not the company is performing or underperforming, mm-hmm. it seems like the board tenure is relatively fixed. Right. What I find is odd then is if the company is performing well, the board is doing its job, why is the board tenure not longer for yeah. them? <laughs> well, it goes both ways, right? If you, it, if you suck while you're kicked yeah. off, if you're great, why aren't you kept around? Yeah, which yeah. sounds odd. So I don't know, maybe maybe, <laughs> this, this, maybe the study needs a little bit more uh, digging. Yeah. Um, I don't also mind the fact that a chairman is paid more significantly because of the course, chairman's yeah. role is yeah. important. Yeah. Uh, again, big oversight role, the strategy role. So a good chairman can make a big difference to a company. Yeah. But yeah, like I mean, the, I guess the coziness and the, uh, you know, like the closed club, I just, think that bothers me a bit. Yeah, it just feel, it feels like it's, it, it feels like the, they're all handing out favors to each other rather than genuinely trying to work out who's going to be best look out. Because again, they are, they're our representatives, right? They're not, even, they're not even the company's representatives. Yeah. They are literally there to represent the interests of shareholders, to make sure the company's being run in our interest. Yeah. And the, the, the chance that the best people happen to all be the, in the same club. It's pretty low. <laughs> well, again, look, if I want to be fair, I try. I do try and be fair, believe it or not, but I guess I could say, well, if you're a director of another board, you've probably got experience. You're probably senior. You probably know some people and some things. You've been around before. If you've been good at your job, of course you'd want to go and find someone who's got proven directorship experience and success over there and bring him over here or her over here rather than try and get someone who's green and say, I hope you're a good director, fingers crossed. Mm. So I guess there is some element of in a small pool of available candidates, those with proven experience, as I said, you know, job for experience and experience for a job. Um, I mean, maybe it makes some degree of sense. I guess I, mean, I, could, I could actually understand that. It's more the fact, the combination of the lack of performance, the lack of, you know, real 
kind of skin in the game in a lot of cases and the fact that they're all, as you say, um, from inside the same club, it just makes you wonder. Maybe, you know, they could change the pay structure to, like, you know, restricted stock units or something like that. Yeah. Uh, instead of, you know, you can get paid more, uh, but you get paid in the same currency as the shareholders. I think that's perfect. And uh, then have, like, you know, three-year, four-year or five-year vesting rules. Yeah. Um, in fact, maybe they only vest after you retire. <laughs> from, <laughs> from, from, so, you know, yeah, you yeah. have to make a lasting impact. I love to, that idea. Yep. Uh, so something like that might, you know, work. Yep. But, yeah, it's... <laughs> You know, I love. Yeah. I, I've said this about executives. That I, I, if it was up to me, if, if you let, give, gave me, uh, Warren Buffett makes a joke by the way that he's he's been on boards for forty years now. He once been asked on the remuneration committee because they know he's not going to give them the money they want, um, which is kind of kind of one of those things. If I was if I was asked to set remuneration, I to your point, mate, I would actually give all bonuses, any any kind of incentive payments, would be done on whatever appropriate measure, probably some sort of return on equity, by the way, or return on investment, um, but that would only be paid out over the following five years in equal increments if the business continued to do well. And so you get this year's money for doing the job, but you only get the cash if in next year, the year after the year after that, the business keeps doing well. In other words, you better make sure that you're not just you know, sand, you know, f- filling filling the buckets this year and then sandbagging next year. You better make sure if you leave, your successor is up to the job. You better make sure you're making the right investments for the long term. Because if you screw this up in three years' time, that bonus you're getting this year goes away. I think that would change markedly the way that CEOs and boards think about the future long-term because we are long-term investors, as you say. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably more extreme on this than most people. I don't, I don't want any manager managed on one-year total shareholder return. I don't care what the share price does this year in the sense that if you're too busy pushing the share price up and not busy enough trying to look at the long-term interest of the business, I don't want you running my company because I'm going to be shouldering shares after you've left, <laughs> and that's you know that's a, that's a pretty asymmetric bet, right? If you if you've ridden into the sunset with your bonus and I'm left holding the bag, I want to be bloody sure you've done the right thing to set the business up for success while I still own the shares, um, rather than over the next three or six month period that some fund manager wants because they want to get their bonus. Um, that's why directors are so important. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I agree with that. I think yeah, aligning with shareholders is what should be the should be the goal or mm, the mm. benchmark yeah yeah and if we you know if you're paying them straight up cash then we're not really doing that um then it's really an owner system so yeah and you should be able to expect that's this is the other problem with any regulation right it's lowest common denominator stuff by definition you have to say um yeah again i talked to him about board independence and you know again i'll use warren buffett because it's an easy example he's been he's been the executive chairman of, of berkshire 55 years in theory, he's not independent. If you've been on the board for more than, I think it's 12 years of the ASX rule or something like that, you're in theory not independent. And I'm like, I don't know, if, if you think about who, who you want on the board, I'm happy to have someone who's been the greatest investor in the world for 50 years, who's got bi- literally billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of wealth tied up in this particular company. If you want to tell me he shouldn't be counted because he's been there too long, he's no longer independent, I'm going to say, yeah, you know what, I, I'm okay with that. Rather than, as you say, someone from the director's club just, just waltzing in, you know, chosen from somewhere else because they're officially independent because they're new and they're different, they've never, never seen the business before. And somehow that person is is a higher standing under the independence rules than someone else. It's um, It does make you wonder. Again, it's lowest common denominator, it has to be. But, but I think that's where, as investors, we need to be, use a little bit of common sense and say, I'm actually okay in this case for, for that to be, uh, that really be, to be bypassed or overlooked. What do yeah. you reckon? No, I, have, uh, I think I agree. Mate, let's finish with a question because we want to dip in the full mailbag. That's what we do after all. Before we do that, 
If you do want to hear your question, hear your comment, and get an answer from the good doctor and myself, we would desperately love if you would send them through. If you have comments, feedback, suggestions, questions, um, recipes, no, I'm kidding, um, it, let us know. Now, you can get us on email, info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au, and our member services team will make sure we get the email. You can jump on the socials, and the fun thing about that is people interact with us. We've had a couple of interactions already this morning, mate. Um and this one comes from uh, only a tweet this morning with a really cool new hashtag. You'll like this one. Um, hit us up on Twitter. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. Um, I normally keep an eye on that one, so you'll, you'll get me out of the way. Bad luck. Uh, if you're on Instagram, I'm at TMF Scott P. Again, and the Motley Fool's also on the same as the Twitter handle. That's at the Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia, easy, what it says on the tin, and I'm Scott Phillips Money. So you can get us there. Please uh, jump on jump on there, follow us, uh, send us a question, direct message, um, use our Twitter handles, follow, like, retweet, ask questions, do all that kind of good stuff. This is where the fun comes from. We had a question from Brad this morning, uh, just, on, just on Twitter, standard tweet, t- tagging us at The Motley Fool AU. I recently joined the tribe with Extreme Opportunities. That's Doc's wonderful market-beating investment service that you too should join. And I'll tell you why, because Brad's got a a hashtag for you in a minute. He says, uh, I recently joined Extreme Opportunities uh, and learning lots after listening to the pod for a while. That's great. Thank you, Brad. Now he says, and this is the reason I asked this question now, Doc, is it actually ties in really nicely with your comment about a domestic bubble before. Because Brad asks, what does a domestic bubble, assuming international travel from, say, 2022, mean for the likes of Webjet over the next one, three, and five years? years and his hashtag was hashtag not cheap inexpensive which i like <laughs> echoing echoing our comments from previous weeks where uh, we're encouraged not to not to call extreme opportunities cheap but to call it inexpensive so it's the uh, it's very 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 inexpensive as i like to say um mate so i like this question it also talks to the bubble question that we had so um hot off the presses brad thank you for the question mate literally came through 15 minutes before we started started recording what do you reckon, mate? If we have a domestic bubble for Brad saying, you know, from here to 2022 and the international travel resumes, what does it mean for the likes of Webjet? Oh, not much. I mean, they basically uh, continue. I mean, their business is reduced. Their mm. business is smaller. They have, you know, were diluted, already diluted their shareholders by what, a factor of like three or something like that, right? So the, I don't think it was that much, was it? Wasn't it one for one? Oh, was it more than something? It was a lot. It's like, whatever. It's like, <laughs> yeah. basically, yeah. you own a much smaller share of that business now <laughs> if you held those shares. Um, so, yeah. like, I mean, it's just, I, I think, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's, they're in a position where this is not a really good position mm-hmm. to be in. They can't really be that competitive. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, they will benefit from travel elsewhere. So if they've got operations mm-hmm. and if travel is on in Europe, then they will benefit from that to some extent. Uh but post the dilution, it's really, really hard. Um, you know, again, like, I don't know how they're going to grow and their balance sheet position, the ability to be uh, aggressive um, in terms of, you know, maybe making few acquisitions now versus, you know, taking, taking being opportunistic. Mm. All of those things would matter. So, uh, I don't know. I would, it's, you know, that's a sector that I am largely ignoring. Mm. Um and if I had to play that sector, I would just focus on, uh, you know, the big guys like the likes of, like, say, Booking.com or something like that, which right. uh, have, you know, very strong balance sheets and things like that to tide over these sort of situations. So, but. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I, I think, Brad, for mine, it's important to kind of break up the 
globe a little bit into its component parts when it comes to businesses like these. So Webjet, Flights and a Corporate Travel, they are our top three <coughs> excuse me, um, travel agents. I own shares in Webjet through my super fund and also own shares in Corporate Travel Management, so put that on the table. Um, so I'm, I'm either biased or right or both, uh, or maybe neither. <laughs> um, the, so, so yeah, if you think about Webjet's business, they have a domestic travel business that will hopefully come November 23, be almost entirely back to, well, I won't say normal, but unaffected by border closures with the exception of WA. Um, so to some degree, that gets back to normal at some point. It's European web beds business continues, again, largely unfettered, although there are new lockdowns in parts of Europe, including France and Germany. Um, so it, it's one of those stories of, you know, you almost got to think about a, think about a travel map, think about a, a flight map. Um, you might see the planes flying from point to point across the globe. And you kind of got to break the lines, to, you know, remove the lines that go between, say, Australia and the rest of the world, or between, in this case, for a little while, France and Germany or the UK. Um, but then, as they, as those lines get re, um, redrawn, if you like, or put back in place, the business will start to get back to some sort of normalcy. As Doc says, the balance sheets matter, and so you've got to think about what the cash flow look like, what the cash burn looks like, and how long they can maintain that cash burn before they either need to go broke, get bought. Or, or raise more capital from shareholders. So that's 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 the real challenge. I think it's one of those scenarios where, for me at least, um, where, you know, Webjet's already back to selling international, oh, sorry, domestic, sorry, uh, travel bookings. That was always, frankly, also their, their core bread and butter, Webjet. They, they did a lot of international travel, but the bread and butter was the local flights, local hotels and accommodation. They very much were a domestic-focused brand in that Webjet brand. And the web beds business in, the, in Europe, um, again, it's going to be it's going to be all over the place, right? So, but remember, of course, the domestic bubble here. If we still have that, say in twenty twenty one, but the rest of the world's back to travelling there, it, it's those lines between Australia and the rest of the world that are broken. But inside Australia works, and in the rest of the world works. Corporate travel also having a similar experience for what it's worth. Um, they're finding their businesses in inside regions are getting back to some sort of normalcy or towards normalcy. Um, the US business is getting back to something like normal. Their Asian business actually has been back to normal or close to normal for a while. So when I say normal, by the way, they're still directionally getting there. They're not at anywhere near normal, normal, but you know what I mean. Um, recovery is underway in those places and, and things are starting to kind of free up again. So I think you need to think about these businesses <coughs> Excuse me. In those regional bubbles, rather than as total businesses. Remember, of course, if you are a Webjet shareholder or you want to buy shares, um, absolutely part of its business is, is broken and will be broken for a while. Um, but the domestic business here, the the kind of intra-regional, intra-European business, if you like, over there uh, remains available and open. Although, as I said, there are some some country-specific closures and that sort of stuff. So, going to be a bumpy, bumpy ride. Um, but just yeah, don't 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 fall for the uh, the thing, particularly with Webjet. The Webjet's not just a Webjet brand, um, and its international business is a smaller component that you might think of of that component. Anything more on that, Doc? Um, no, the only thing I was thinking about was uh, like I mean, even when we are thinking about travel like say so domestic travel right mm. I mean you have to think about what is the capacity at which planes are going to fly yes um, if they're going to be flying at 50% of the previous capacity well that's something right. to keep in mind the other thing to remember is 8 to 9 million some you know 9 million tourists mm-hmm. come to Australia every year on yep. average yep. Um, they also travel domestically right so and, and you know the fascinating thing is that when you add Eight nine million to a population of twenty five yeah, million. That is a right. that is like a thirty percent. It's, it's, it's a meaningful chunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take yeah. that out. Yeah. That has meaningful impact. So I there's like. a, there's a lot of impacts that are yeah. going to be noisy. Yes. Um. You know, and maybe once there's a vaccine and then vaccination starts, you know, probably later next year, yeah. we would start getting a clearer picture of how. Yeah. So like I mean, you know, I think the runway point that you're making, I think, mm. is absolutely the mm. the 
the point that if if the runway no is pun okay, huh? <laughs> no pun intended. No, no pun intended. <laughs> if if they if a company like Webjet, um, of, of all three, I don't know. I feel like uh, corporate travel has actually uh, been the savviest of the lot mm. <laughs> by managing to not actually have to raise capital and therefore dilute. It has positioned itself in a way that uh, it has raised capital eventually. But it didn't raise capital at rock bottom prices. I think which was a really smart move, savvy move. So that you know that reduces pain to a large extent. You want dilution, but you don't want that kind of dilution which uh, both Flight Center and Webjet got. So, um, so there's that. I think. Yeah, and then yeah, lots of ifs and buts and things to think about here. Yeah, there's very good. That's it, mate. Uh, but speaking of, well, you know, I it would be it would be silly of churlish of me not to reflect on Brad's hashtag. And that was not cheap, inexpensive. If you like inexpensive and you like beating the market, I have a deal for you. You can join Doc and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Simply go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and you can get a very, very, very inexpensive but very high quality and high value investment service run by two of the best in the business who are currently beating the market by a very wide margin with their own special brand of growth investing. It is a bit higher risk, but they expect higher returns. And thus far, the results are pretty good. As we always say, past performance is no guarantee, so always keep that in mind. But the guys are doing a spectacularly good job. And I reckon when you see the price, you'll be, well, you'll be surprised you haven't already joined. And frankly, I reckon you should join straight away. So after this is finished, I've been doing it now. Pause the podcast. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast where you can get the best from Doc and Kevin and make sure you uh, give yourself a chance to do very well on the stock market as well. All right, mate, before we go, if you don't already, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, the Podcast One app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Leave us a review. Say some lovely things about us. Lie if you have to. Do us a favor. Just, just you know, if we're helping you, help us. Uh, we, you know, the, the world can do with a bit more foolishness, frankly, especially this week. So if you want to, if you want some escapism, if you think other people deserve it too, let them know about the Motley Fool Money podcast. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and some marketing, to be clear, straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's also where you get some of my commentary, by the way. So if you're not doing it on the socials, go there for the occasional email from me a couple of times, three times a week sometimes. Um, you get the but yeah. I was gonna say the best of what I've got to say, mate. But other people can say whether it's good or not. In any case, it's the best I can do. So mate, let me let me put it that way. If you don't like it, then at least you've been warned. All right, that's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back on Sunday. Yep, we're coming back with a very special mailbag episode and some more foolish insight. Until then, full on, full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.